for January 18th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 81, The Arsenio Hall Show. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the city of Los Angeles, where God is executing a biblical judgment upon us by uh, drowning us in three major storm systems uh, over the whole next week. I guess that whole rainbow thing was a crock. I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel of overthinkers to overthink all manner of things. And man, what a busy pop culture tonight. Uh, night it is tonight um, as we record this Sunday January 17th is when we when we recorded of course it goes live on Monday the 18th uh, you know at uh, 12.01 a.m. Eastern time uh, in tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. of course right absolutely right because you care about these these minutia of you know our process for recording <laughs> but the important thing is that though it is sometime during the week for you for us it is Sunday night and we uh, uh, here's the, here, here are the things that we are not watching on TV in order to, uh, do the show for you. We are not watching the Golden Globes, though we are, um, though we are, uh, watching several live blogs as we, you know, as we talk. And so we may break in with some breaking news from the Golden Globes as we go. So, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, the other thing that we're missing is the season premiere of 24, um, and uh, that's that's a pisser, especially for Pete, who I think who uh, watches it a lot. So we're going to call this the the uh, the Pete Fenzel honorary question. Uh, give us a uh, give us a prediction for the coming season of Twenty Four. Pete Fenzel, what copy that? Copy that? <laughs> copy that? We don't Stop. have time There's for no jokes. Time. <laughs> Chloe, I need the names of everybody who has the last name starting with J in the borough of Bronx. Okay, so Jack Bauer, this season is in New York City, which is a city that is near and dear to my heart. And my prediction is, in the wild and crazy world of the 24 plot that never really makes sense, that at some point in the show this season, Jack Bauer will end up walking out on stage during a Broadway musical, perhaps branching a gun and yelling at everybody. That's my prediction. Uh, I made an additional prediction that he's going, that's perhaps too specific to really write down, that he's going to yell, that he's going to yell, and Matt contributed this as well. There's a bomb! And someone else is going to be, tell me about it. Look at that choreography. <laughs> nah, I think that, that uh, 24 left me? the show. There's what a you bomb. Saying? You're telling me. <laughs> I want to see a guest appearance by Harvey Firestein. I would really un- appreciate that. Like perhaps uh, in hairspray or something, like John Travolta in can a I, wig. Can I take us totally off the rails? Uh, a listener named Cat wrote in uh, wrote in to ask me what accents I know because apparently she thinks I do a lot of funny voices. Uh, on the podcast, do I do a lot of funny voices? Do I do a lot of funny voices on the podcast, Governor? I don't know if they do a lot of funny voices. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're funny. I think they're pretty crappy myself. Uh, hey, who's that? That's Mark <laughs> Lee. That's Mark Lee. Mark, uh, a uh, the prediction for twenty-four. Well, first of all. Y'all may think this accent is an affectation, but I'm actually in Birmingham, Alabama. I ain't in no Brooklyn no more right now. Um, I'm terrible. That's really disrespectful and discriminatory of people from the South. They're my people as well, too. Uh, But I digress. Um, uh, Yes, New York City, of course, is near and dear to my heart because I live there and I work for said city. Um, So my prediction is kind of twofold. The the one they're going to get... We're going to miss out on some really things that really should, uh, you know, give the show that local New York flavor. Like they should really have like an extensive scene with subway, like in the subway stations and subway cars. And uh, they might not do it just because they're not, I know they're not filming a whole lot in New York. I think they will and they should depict um, meddling and bumbling by the New York Police Department. Um, who, uh, as brave and fine as many of those officers are, are notoriously uh, concerned over turf battles and things like that. And we'll likely be getting the Jack Bauer's way who just wants to find the bomb or the terrorists or whatever he's looking for. 
There you have it. <laughs> That's a very controversial rec- uh, prediction that law enforcement agencies will be paralyzed by bureaucracy and that Jack Bauer will have to take matters into his own hands. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's going out on a limb. We don't have time for paperwork. Great. <laughs> right. I think they, they don't have time for Dennis Franz's ass is the problem, actually. <laughs> oh. But with, the, with the New York locality stuff, like you guys have heard that as well, too, right? Like only parts of it are filmed in New York, and most of it's like on a soundstage somewhere in Canada or some crap like that. Yeah, it's expensive to shoot a movie in the United States on account of there are unions here. I guess there are unions in Canada, too. There, there are commies up there. Also, Mark, the subway thing, like 24 is not that exciting if an hour and a half is him trying to get across town. Right. Yeah. An entire twenty minutes. It's so I don't have time for the M60 bus. Well, you've seen Die Hard with a Vengeance, right? Uh, Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, that's the quintessential like public transit in New York City takes longer than you think that it will. Scene when they do that car chase through Central Park. Have you ever seen Die Hard with a Vengeance on an airplane or on television? No. You know, oh, you know yes. what they make. You know yes. what they make Bruce Willis do at at the beginning of the movie. He has to go up to uh, uh, he has to go up to Harlem uh, and stand. I mean, and that's you know that's pretty uh, stereotypical in itself. But he has to go up to Harlem and stand on the street naked, except for a sandwich board that says "I hate N words." Right. Yeah. Uh, and they uh, and it's um, and uh, it's amended in the. Uh, it's amended in the, the Boulderized version to I hate everybody. Everybody? Yes, I hate everybody. <laughs> and so he has to go up to Harlem and stand on the street in his image board that says I hate everybody. And, um, oh, who's the sidekick in that movie? Samuel Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson, right. And he comes out, and he's obviously enraged at this uh, now <laughs> non-racial... How can, you, how can you stand in the middle of Harlem wearing a sign that says I hate everybody? You think I want to wear a sign that says I hate everybody? I'm just saying you can't come up to Harlem and stand here with a sign that says I hate everybody. Your general non-specific misanthropy is devastating to our culture. Do they, do, they, do, they, do they shoot another scene or is it done in digital post-production? Like how do they change the word? No, they, they blur out the word or just you know push a punch in so that it so that you don't see it. Um, yes. But they dub over they dub over the dialogue, which is how they do it. Uh, Frankly, I feel that if you had a sign that said "I hate everybody," you could walk most places in New York and get high fived. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, we should put that on. We should put that on one of our uh, on one of our t shirts at the Overthinking It t shirt store. Zazzle.com <laughs> slash Overthinking It. Josh McNeil, that's your voice. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Happy day before Martin Luther King Day. Thanks. And in honor of Martin Luther King Day, I have a two-word prediction for this season of 24, which is Black President. They already did that twice. <laughs> oh, damn. No, no. <laughs> They're going to bring him back in some crazy uh, – Do you not, do you not remember that, that Dennis Haysbert was, was the president for season one? Yeah, that was actually the joke. Oh, I see. That yeah. I mean, I read. I read apparently, series. delivered that a little too deadpan. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, yeah, gosh. Yeah. A lot of the. No, I, I, I have no predictions other than possibly like Conan gets booted off of NBC, goes to Fox, and ends up being the villain of this season of Twenty. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. That would be spectacular. Yeah. Uh, all right. We don't have time for your hair. And finally, my uh, my prediction my prediction is this: Jack Bauer develops narcolepsy, falls down in the middle of the street, and all twenty four episodes are of him taking a long and well deserved nap. <laughs> he has he has accumulated quite a sleep debt. That man, it's true, and he would still in? probably get like a two percent share. Yeah, right. What do we What do we in season nine? Uh, eight, I think. Right? Have you? I mean, have you been up uh, twenty-four hours straight for a grand total of eight days in your life? Uh, they're not consecutive. No, not consecutive <laughs> days. But I mean, like, I, you know, there were a couple all-nighters in college that I pulled that that were truly epic, where I ended up being up up for thirty-six or forty hours. But like those events. Uh, those events are not, or like you know, a couple bachelor parties where like you know the night becomes a blur, and I I, I 
right, like, regained consciousness in the afternoon, right, standing in the middle of the FDR, uh, FDR drive, right, in, uh, you know, I don't know, in a, in a ducky inner tube and things like this. But those, those, those incidences, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand. Oh, not me. There was also that bachelor party we went to where you had to beat that guy for information. <laughs> so you were pretty tired that day. Yeah. <laughs> No, man, I, I think I pulled like a 24-hour all-nighter like a couple of days ago um, or like earlier that last week. I, I don't know. I, I Maybe that's why writing I identify – Writing the Six Reasons Avatar Sucks article? Yeah, exactly. Like I'll do it like 24-hour days for overthinking it for Christ's It's sake. true that your articles sometimes come in at like 1 or 2 in the morning for me, which means it's it's sunrise where you are. Oh, yeah, definitely. Pound in the pavement. I don't, understand, uh, I don't understand why you do that to yourself. Well, maybe you should watch 24 and see a kindred spirit at work. <laughs> <laughs> Copy that! <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know what you, what you need to do. You need to uh, call in if you hear anything you like. We're, uh, I think we're due for another audience feedback show, so we are collecting the voicemails and emails that we have. Um, uh, so, uh, email address is podcast at overthinkingit.com and the voicemail as usual is 20eatlog01 that's 203-285-6401 a, uh, a brief word uh, before we get into it uh, normally we, we ask you for money um, don't give us money this month give some money to Haiti Go on to that uh, Red Cross website and, uh, you know, donate, donate some money. Or to the Wyclef Jean Foundation or, you know, to uh, whoever, Doctors Without Borders, whatever it is you do, like, whatever your thing is. Go, go do that. Do not give money to overthinking it for the next month. Give it to, give it to some people who, who actually need it, yeah? Um, not that we're taking the PayPal button off our homepage, mind you. But, uh, hey, that's good. Public service announcement over. What's the deal with Conan and Leno? I thought they were BFF, and all with OMG, they're not. WTF. OMG. <laughs> okay, sorry. I thought maybe this is a barren source of podcasting. OMG, my BFF Jill, right? I mean... <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I actually the, the, this controversy has risen to such a dramatic height, to such a screaming crescendo in the ears of the American mind that I actually watched an episode of Conan yesterday, which I have not done more than twice in the past, say, like five years. Um, and, and keep in mind, I'm an insomniac. I'm always up that late. And I loved Conan when I was in high school. I suspect there are a lot of people on this podcast who are in the same boat that I am. Where when you were in high school or you were in college, you loved Conan. Watched them all the time. You would sneak sneak downstairs, you know, try not to wake your parents up and just watch Conan. Um, that, that stopped happening to me. And I just stopped watching late night television. It just just something I was not as interested in. It didn't it was no longer as exciting to stay up late after college, you know, because you'd proven that you could do it on numerous occasions. Uh, and just the sort of day by day keeping up with the Joneses in terms of not even just popular culture, but just sort of like the buzz of the of the Gristing mill of of uh, media entertainment, it just didn't have as much appeal. So I watched. Well, it's also like if if you're going to be up late, like, and you have a choice between Conan or John Stewart, what are you gonna? What are you, you're going to watch John Stewart? You know. Well, yeah, I mean, but they're not on at the same time. But uh, so also DVR. I mean, that's the other big thing is that if I have a choice between Conan, John Stewart, or an episode of Quantum Leap, um, I mean. You know, quantum leap that might not even be around tomorrow because of some sort of crazy temporal paradox. So uh, I'm going to go with quantum leap. No, I think the DVR is also part of it because you get used to watching shows other than the times when they're on. So the idea of having a TV watching routine kind of falls away. And even if you did enjoy the Tonight Show, if you don't have the rhythm of watching TV on a daily basis, then the incentives for watching it are much lower than if this is something that's part of your day, right? Repetition. It drives most television programming. Just get people keep doing the things that they've always been doing um, because that's the way that their lives work. There's so much TV to watch once you get, like, Stuart and Colbert and Conan and all these things. There's, like, you know, it would be it's a full-time job just keeping up with all, all, the, uh, all the television that's out there, you know? Yeah, I mean, for the love of Ray J alone, takes up half my day. Most of the time. <laughs> I mean, also on the uh, on the late night front, if anything good happens, you will get an email about it or see it on a blog within like an hour of being awake the next morning. Mm. 
you know, when when the Letterman thing scandal broke, like, did anyone not see that by noon the next day? Right. You know, yeah, 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 exactly. You don't have it's, to watch, you know, some like 18 year old get interviewed by, you know, one of these guys about stuff that you couldn't care about to get the good stuff anymore. About Transformers, too. Yeah, they're going to do yeah. the good stuff. Yeah. All the monologues, for example, from this week, people were posting people were posting online and, you know, putting them in. Uh, in all the culture blogs, so you get to see Conan uh, run down NBC. I, in a way, I almost kind of can't believe uh, that it's happening. And like, don't you know? I'm not crying for Cole, Conan because he gets a forty million dollar golden parachute, right? Like, he's going to be okay. But um, and I guess was was the deal that his crew got taken care of, or his crew did not get taken care of? There's been some I, talk about his crew. I mean, Josh, are you aware of something that's been going on? Because I'm some, not sure. something I read said that uh, his crew was not being taken care of, but that he was working on that. Oh, good. And Conan. it seems to me with a with a forty million dollar parachute, you know, he can take care of them to a large extent by himself. But he probably doesn't want to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, after taxes, that's what twenty five million. Yeah, geez. I mean, his kids are going to want to go to college one day. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the effect of, you know, uh, the sort of new information economy on two major parties, artists and companies, right? But I don't think people really talk a lot about the effect of things like music downloads and YouTube and this sort of revolution in entertainment, the effect that it's going to have on people like carpenters and lighting designers. You know what I mean? Like these are, these are people whose jobs are much more mundane and perhaps did not go into their line of work with the sort of level of risk tolerance that you would expect from someone like a, a uh, entertainment executive or a talk show host, right? I mean, the, the, the people who really lose out, you know, that, the person who really loses out is the carpenter who has no job and now has to go compete with a whole bunch of other carpenters out there, which is a terrible place to be competing in the workplace right now. Um, because your show isn't making money because there's a new distribution method that the company that makes it hasn't figured out how to make profitable. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, like well, those, I mean, like, look, if you're, I mean, if you're a really good... Uh, you know, if you're a really good scenic carp or you're a really good lighting designer or something like that, those guys are so used to putting together 20 or 30 jobs over the course of the course of the year, uh, you know, and that like the the experienced ones, I mean, the ones that are on the, the big primetime shows are probably pretty senior and probably can can find work. But yeah, like the, this is an effect, though, of, you know, production. Uh, American entertainment production declining precipitously ever since the writers' strike, and then you know more so with the, the global economic downturn. And like, hey, you know where it's great to be a carpenter right now? Like Toronto. You know. I thought you were going to say never mind. I thought you were going to say Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry. I'd imagine you have a lot of lawsuits coming at you if they had courts that were still functioning. Maybe they do. I don't know, but. Uh, I don't think oh, they yeah. really ever had functioning courts. Um, yeah, to to, to yeah. make the to make the general specific though, the carpenters on the Tonight Show, that's not Conan's crew, right? I mean, he's talking about some producers and his writers, most likely. The but guys who crew, he's talking about like the cameraman and the sound guy and the cue card guy, right? That's what I thought. No, I, I think mean, do those, about, do those guys I, get fired if Leno comes back? I think he's talking about the creative team. Well, now you see there are two. Um, there are two production teams, right? And and there's only going to be one. There's only going to be one show, um, the the Leno show. Leno back at eleven thirty. Uh, Is Leno going to be filming in Burbank or? I mean, aren't they in two different locations? They yeah, they, they are. Just... They are now in uh, in two different locations. I think they built a new studio uh, for mm-hmm. the Tonight Show and for Conan. Um, they, uh, which is at uh, Universal Studios, where the uh, where the theme park is in uh, Studio City in Los Angeles. Yeah, I don't know, but I think the people that I don't know if the if the whole production team, if the whole like below the line production team, uh, like you know gaffers and camera guys and whatever came, but I'll bet like. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of writers and and producers and and people like this who kind of uprooted their families uh, with Conan to 
to come out here. And now those, you know, now those guys are, are thinking, you know, doing it with the guarantee of this sweet gig, doing it for this sweet gig. And now, you know, uh, rug's been pulled out from, from under those guys. That's that, you know, and that's, that's tough. It's hard, hard to lose your job, even if your job yeah. is awesome. Yeah. You shouldn't it go is. out on a limb and just take that risk to write for the Tonight Show. You should look for something that has a future, like Human Target. That's gonna that that's really the safer bet because everybody knows that Tonight Show comes and goes, but uh, the the future belongs to that stuff. Anyway, sorry, Josh, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I'm going to take the other side for a second. I mean, I hate to, you know, you always want to root for Conan over a faceless NBC executive, but. These guys sort of, they made it, right? I mean, they were writers for The Tonight Show. That's, if you want to write comedy, that's that's the brass ring. Like, one, they'll probably be able to find other good jobs in L.A. Um, there's, Olive Garden. There's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but two, like, I mean, it's sort of like, it's a, to use a political reference, like, if you go work on somebody's campaign and they lose, well, you lost. And you don't get to go then and work for the president. Like, yeah, but I don't think that's I don't think that's part of the deal. I mean, I it wasn't like, hey, we're we got, we're gonna give you guys a try for six months, you know? And uh, uh, well, do they have contracts? I mean, their contracts are presumably not going to get breached, right? Yeah. Well, no. I yeah, I don't know how how much they're going to have to to pay out. I mean, it's 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 sort of. It's sort of interesting. They were making jokes about it, apparently, on the red carpet for the Golden Globes tonight, right? Like, uh, along the lines of, uh, it's raining today and all this week in L.A., so, you know, rain was falling on the red carpet for the Globes. And, and I think someone, it may have been Tom Hanks, said something like, um, uh, yeah, it was going to rain at 10, but NBC pushed the rain back to 11.30 or, so, you know, something like that. Um, wow. Good thing. And... Hey. Breaking news! Breaking news! They just gave out the Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, and it goes to Christoph Waltz for Inglorious Bastards. I believe is the Jew Hunter. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which is, as I venture to say, I'm going to make a really controversial statement along the lines that what Mark made before about Jack Bauer flouting society's rules. And I'm going to say that Christoph Waltz did a good job in that movie. He was a good actor in that part. And that that part was part of what made the movie good. I know it's hard for you to believe that that guy did a good job in that part, but he did. Whoa, Um, Pete, Pete, Pete. Come on now. Pull me back. Pull me back. Yeah. <laughs> I am on the cutting edge of entertainment prognostication right now. Definitely. Uh, but, oh, the next thing you know, I'm going to start saying crazy things like, hey, Mad Men really deserve to win best drama this year. Right, guys? Right? I mean, that's real controversial. You guys are in a tar and feather. What, what did win best drama? Mad Men. Oh, it did? It, it's already it, won? Yeah, it won already. What was the what was What was the field for that category? Uh, for best television series drama for Mad Men, yeah, or for best supporting actor in a motion picture, Christoph Waltz, or for best actor in a television series comedy or musical, Alec Baldwin. Oh, he's pretty good in Thirty Rock. He is. It wasn't for Thirty Rock actually. It was for an anti-drug series of PSAs that he made for PBS. <laughs> I actually just saw him in uh, It's Complicated. In which uh, oh, yeah. my girlfriend and I were the youngest people in the theater by like 15 years. Yeah, no doubt. Who better not after seeing that movie, for Christ's sake? <laughs> yeah. But he's, um, he's amazing in it. Um, they're all very good. Steve Martin and Meryl Streep, they're both great. But Alec Baldwin, just like, it, it's... We were, think, uh, we were talking about it afterwards, and like, where did he come from? Did he do comedy before this? The only thing I really knew him from was The Shadow. Which yeah, was Alec not, Baldwin? Did the not hunt really for, accurately the, predict his comedic genius. The Hunt for Red October? Oh, right. He was I'm, good I'm, in Beetlejuice. He was good. That was, yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. That was a different. That, but then it's almost like a different person. It's like in the sort of hyper reality that we all, that we were talking about on, during our recent post structuralist kick, this idea that by trying to sort of imitate real life, we end up creating the simulacrum of real life. Like, there's this understanding of Alex Baldwin as a, as a sort of fictional person that doesn't have continuity, I think, from his early career when he was sort of a slim, good-looking dude to, like, his current career as sort of, like, the basically the new William Shatner. 
uh, is what it, except like better at what he does than William Shatner would be at doing these sorts of things. And, and not as good. You can't forget what? the William Shatner. Less of a joke. You can't forget the William Shatner spoken word musical endeavors that he does as well. Mm. And also the memory of all those drop kicks of Star Trek. Alec Baldwin doesn't mm. have any of that silliness. Camp. He's, just, well, he he's, got the, camp uh, he's got the whole like Team America thing, but I guess that wasn't voluntary. And he, he played, he's on Ben Center Live a lot of times and it's self deprecating. But yeah, you're right. He isn't quite as clownish. Well, he's right. clownish, but he's not as, as sort of like. I don't know. I quick, think there are similarities. Quick, I think there are definitely similarities. Sure, but quick, but, quick fun fact about, about Team America and Alec Baldwin. Apparently, when he learned that he was going to be in the movie, he volunteered to supply his voice, but Trey Parker and Matt Stone turned him down because they wouldn't <laughs> have any other actual celebrity voices on there. How crazy would that have been if that were actually Alec Baldwin's voice? It kind of reframes the whole movie if you consider that he would have been up for it. Like, it, it comes across as this kind of scathing criticism, but if you have this guy who's, like, really arrogant and, like, won't take, you know, won't open up his mind and, like, listen to reason. Um, but if he's like, yeah, I'll do that. Like, whatever, it's fine. Don't like, you think you, that you, a- believable that he's in league with Kim Jong-il to destroy the earth or whatever it's, I, doing. I think that scathing is maybe uh, maybe overstating the case for Team Aware uh, Team America World Police it's 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 a criticism okay for sure they have a song called You Are Worthless Alec Baldwin <laughs> <laughs> like how much more scathing oh well isn't it sung by an evil dictator about how he's yeah, terrible? Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> well, then, in, in that case, then, if, if an evil dictator is calling Alec Baldwin worthless, then that may be interpreted as a praise of Alec Baldwin. Unless Kim Jong, unless the Trey Parker and Matt Stowe are of Kim Jong Il's party without knowing it, right? So, sorry, that's a Milton reference. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys remember him from Clerks the Animated Series when Alec Baldwin was in Clerks the Animated Series back in the day? I remember that one time I went to go rent Clerks because we were all going to watch it together, and I accidentally rented Clerks the Animated Series. And I think you, Matt, and you, Josh, were there when we watched it. Um, and it was pretty funny. There's like five episodes. There's yeah. not a lot of it. But, uh, but yeah, and he plays Leonardo Leonardo of Leonardo, New Jersey, which is uh, pretty exciting. And I thought he did a good job in that. That was a long time ago. Um, I don't know. He's in Pearl Harbor, and he's very funny in that. That, I think, is the turning point for Alec Baldwin for me. If you want to look at the sort of two halves of his career, the moment where Alec Baldwin sort of stops being like, like sort of leading man Alec Baldwin and starts to become kind of parodic comedic Alec Baldwin is is which includes his performance in The Departed, I think, along with his performance in Thirty Rock, which are both kind of satirical portrayals of humanity. Uh, satirical is maybe too strong, but certainly they have a certain commonality to them. Is that speech he has near the end of Pearl Harbor, where he's informing everybody that they're going to go bomb Tokyo. Um, and it's like, all right, <laughs> Alec Baldwin tells us to do it. I guess we have to go do it. Uh, just the sort of absurdity of it after the somnolence of the previous two hours is just sort of woke me up to a brave new world of Alec Baldwin, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, why didn't they make a movie called The Doolittle Raid, right? Like that that wasn't, uh, you know, that didn't have any of that downer Pearl Harbor stuff. Because yeah. Eddie Murphy <laughs> wouldn't sign on. Eddie Murphy? Eddie <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Murphy as uh, Doolittle, and Eddie Murphy as the guy who flew the plane, and Eddie Murphy as the Japanese guy. <laughs> Starring Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> what are you talking about? What do you mean I gotta go, Buck Man? That doesn't make no sense. <laughs> I feel like my well, question well, about him has always okay. been like, he couldn't spare one role for Arsenio Hall. <laughs> Arsenio couldn't have been oh one of the cops. Come on. Oh my God. Arsenio! Arsenio! His enemies are divided and set against each other. There's a power vacuum. It's time for you to make your make your move to power. It's time for Arsenio Hall to come back and lead us all to a brave new tomorrow. Um, woo, I forget. Woo, this woo, is Marshall woo, Paul. Woo, 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 yeah. woo, woo. Mm. Wasn't that the, 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 the fist pumping, you know? Yeah, you got it right, yeah. Okay, good. Got it. What's, uh, what's Arsenio been doing? 2009, Black Dynamite as Tasty Freeze. Oh, my gosh. Black uh, freaking Dynamite. Have we talked about this on the podcast before? You saw it, I know. Jordan, uh, no, yeah, I, I saw it, and um, it, it kind of blew my mind. It's one of the best movies I saw last year. Easily. 
Um, why that is not nominated for a Golden Globe, I have no idea. Are you being ironical? No, not at all. Not at all. It was a fantastic, falls out, crazy exploitation parody, um, which should be seen by all who appreciate uh, irony in pop culture. Tell us about it. <laughs> I mean, you, you just, you, you, I was kind of, I was kind of waiting for you to launch in there and like, where's, where's the beef? Well, no, I, this is supposed to be the Golden Glows podcast, is it not? And and this this is unfortunately not nominated for one. Well, what are the Golden Globes about? What are the Golden Globes about, Mark? Uh, the Golden are Globes about? are about. Uh, celebrities on a red carpet and putting on a really long award show for selling advertisements for network TV. Um, you're so jaded. You're so cynical, yeah. man. It's like, about the excellence, excellence in entertainment. About the Hollywood Foreign Press Agency. It's about the Hollywood Foreign Press Agency. And How they need I to forget? learn... What? Yeah, I know. So they need to learn about Black Diamond. Maybe the reason they didn't know about maybe the reason Black Diamond Dynamite wasn't nominated is that nobody invited the Hollywood Foreign Press to go see it. Like that's entirely maybe because possible. We didn't, maybe because we didn't hype it on the blog and on the podcast. I think that actually yeah, I, right. no one but myself to blame. No, I told I, I tried to tell everyone I could to go see this movie, um, which was a little bit un- uncomfortable. Around I couldn't you know come into the office you know and say, "Hey guys, I saw this amazing movie called Black Dynamite." Um, for a variety of reasons, mostly because I have a large number of African American coworkers, and I think that might have been a little bit awkward. But so wait, I, I'm totally. Yeah, that's my question: Is it possible that like the Belarus Star Tribune reporter just didn't really understand what black exploitation was all about? <laughs> why does uh, why does the uh, the brown skin person not like the white skin person? Like, what is this? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Belarus is a long way with the Uzbeks. <laughs> He's not Croatian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. I love Croat. Moldavian, I would understand. Do you think there's a movie called like Moldavian Dynamite that's like yeah, about yeah. like feuds in like the sort of sub Ukrainian steppe or what have you in like the former princedoms of southeastern Europe? I, I, um, yes, I think there's an entire subgenre out there called Slav exploitation, which uh, <laughs> you have yet to fully explore. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too far down this right hole, but it was it was it was a fine film, and you really all deserve you all. Oh, yourself to see it. Did, did you guys go? Uh, did you watch um, the Arsenio Hall show? What was it called? Was it called Arsenio or was it called the Arsenio Hall show? Yes, the Arsenio Hall show. 96, yeah. 96 episodes, 1989 to 1994, according to, uh, according to IMDb. But one of which had Bill, Bill Clinton famously playing the saxophone on it, right? Right. Yeah. That moment came and went. That's that not happened. a lot of shows for five years. Of a night, of a night, of a talk show, right? Yeah, it, it wasn't bad. I remember, like the first time Jim Carrey really made it, I think was on that show. No, he was like, on. He sort of he was on in Living Color. Yeah, but the be- first time he like broke out of that and was acknowledged as being a funny person off of that show was was Arsenio Hall, and not just the. Hey, yeah. there you go. NBC's looking for someone for Tonight Show, right? I mean, they're here someone with talk show experience. I'm sure he's looking for work. Yeah, bring back Arsenio Hall. This night show. How about that? Or the short-lived, the short-lived uh, sitcom Arsenio, which played six episodes back in 1997, featuring Arsenio Hall as Michael Atwood. That that doesn't make sense. If you're going to call the show Arsenio, <laughs> why, <laughs> why, why do you not name the character Arsenio? <laughs> like why, so the, why small, sh- the small cartoon elf that sat on his shoulder and told him to do bad things was called Arsenio. He's called uh, Vivica Fox. So, wow. Yeah. Oh, I was just I was just saying that. Uh, well, because Martin called himself Martin, right? In the show Martin, yeah, which was about. Yeah, well, Jerry yeah, Seinfeld yeah. called himself Jerry Seinfeld. Show Seinfeld. That's true. Right, it's, Chase, it, you know. right like it, it just strikes <laughs> me that if you're going to name the show after the uh, after the star, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to give the star another ca- a, a character name that is different from uh, right that is different from their actual name. Well, here's an interesting uh, here's an interesting trifecta of shows 
Um, and they're unified by the presence of a man by the name of Scott Schaefer. Because I was looking at the Arsenio Hall MDB page, the Arsenio Hall show, looking at who its sort of producers and creators were. And so this guy, Scott Schaefer, was a, was a director and writer uh, on, the, and on the Arsenio Hall show. And he went on to participate in two other shows as a director and as a writer, other than Law and Order, which everybody did. Oh, no, he was in an episode as a clerk of Law and Order. Um, and not there's a show called Say What. That's not what I'm talking about, the Say What karaoke show. I mean, he was, in, he was a producer and a writer for Bill Nye the Science Guy, which is an interesting uh, career move to go from writing for the Arsenio Hall show to writing for Bill Nye the Science Guy. And he also directed the Penn and Teller a bull beep, uh, show um, on USA, which is a good show. Um, it's always interesting to see where the production people go. Um, that they're sort of in line with what we were talking about before with the crew. It's easy to track the stars. What's really interesting gives you a sense if you want to use this IMDb tool to figure out the moving and shaking going on in the business. It's really cool to watch the the back of the house people move around. Um, and I think the one reason that I was uh, that actually came to mind is that we were talking about Conan filming at Universal Studios. And my favorite show that ever filmed at Universal Studios was the show Roundhouse, which was a Nickelodeon show. Yeah, and I, I remember, remember it. Talk- and I talked to some people in Brooklyn last summer who knew a bunch of the people who had written for and produced Roundhouse. And they've apparently gone on to do all sorts of stuff, like people who put together the Gilmore Girls are people from Roundhouse. Like, there's, there's a whole sort of diaspora from that show, which was a lot of younger people that have moved on and done a lot of other properties that you might not be aware of. And it's interesting to see. I mean, you can follow the faces, but you can also sort of follow the producers, follow the directors, follow the writers, like see what projects they're working on. That's, it creates some interesting narratives. You know, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. We've been talking about The Simpsons a lot on on Overthinking It with Simpsons Week last week. And it's it's astonishing when you consider how large an enterprise any sort of major entertainment production is, whether it's a, a primetime television show or a, uh, or a film, right? How many people uh, kind of have a finger in the pie or how many pi- – that's not quite the right metaphor – how many cooks there are – in the kitchen. And all this talk about the Simpsons and the Simpsons hasn't been good for the last 10 years and the writers aren't as good and blah, 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 made me think about, um, made me think about agency. And there, you know, a lot of people in the comment threads were kind of laying the blame at, at the feet of different people, um, as far as like why the Simpsons isn't good, uh, anymore, right? It's because the new writers grew up watching The Simpsons, or it's because the old writers are hanging on, or the people who actually write the episodes, the credited writer. And, like, very often a credited writer on a comedy like that won't have, uh, you know, will get rewritten so many times that though they are the writer of record, uh, it it goes through a, a, um, a chain of, you know, supervising producers and producers and executive producers and story editors and uh, right, and things like this. There, there's a hierarchy uh, of writers on the television show um, that it, it could look very different from the original from the original script that got turned in. It started me thinking about agency. And uh, I, I, I want to try this out and see, see what you guys think of, of this idea. We ascribe agency... Um, in making arguments, we ascribe agency to those people uh, such that our argument works. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? That is to say... Well, that's what the Republicans do, certainly. Right? <laughs> 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 not to not to overgeneralize or you know get political well, uh, or anything like we laughed but i mean that's true of almost any human endeavor right right yeah exactly that is to say that is to say i'm going to make an argument about the simpsons not being good and my my argument is going to have implicit within it the idea that certain people are responsible for the simpsons uh, for the Simpsons not being good, like I need somewhere to hang my, I need somewhere someone to blame, right? So I'm going to come up with someone to blame, whether or not it makes sense uh, for uh, whether or not, whether or not the the facts really bear that out, or whether or not the, uh, the situation is is in fact a lot more complicated as it tends to be in almost every um, in almost every human endeavor. I mean, I think the biggest example of that is when you ascribe agency to countries, when you're talking about what countries did, 
Like if you're learning a history class and you're saying, well, then Britain did this and France did this, as if an entire country can act with a single single sort of ontological purpose or teleological purpose, right, in any sort of meaningful way. And these are not, in fact, hugely complex interdependent systems of different sorts of, of kinds and shapes and sizes that are producing certain sort of net results. But it's really, but there's there's always it's always narrativized for you as if it's sort of this like family of folks that are living on the map. They get to play games with each other as if it's almost like the pantheon of Olympus when, in fact, things are much less uh, singular in the way that things work out. Yeah, I mean, similarly, the, um, the financial crisis in some ways has been played out by a cabal of Wall Street financiers who have taken down the entire system. And no, it, was, it was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that were responsible for it. Right? Oh, those, those, yeah. <laughs> damn you, Fannie. Damn you, Freddie. Um, and the reality, of course, is that, you know, a a whole slew of, uh, of factors went into causing this crisis. But going back to this, this thing, idea of agency, right? Anything large and complex like a television show or the Roman Empire or the financial system or, let's say, General Motors, these things that um, when, when, when you look at them and they start to fail, um, you really want to blame people. But in each of those instances, there have just been so many things that have fed into where their current state is now that to pinpoint any one of those things and say that that is the thing that has caused us to be where we are now is i would say a, a futile a futile task yeah even Which something like Pat robertson like, probably shouldn't you know give uh haitians packed with the devil credit for the earthquake right i mean that's <laughs> that's the most egregious example i could think of in, in recent memory right i mean uh, plenty of counter examples too of people who make deals with the devil and don't have earthquakes like Jimi hendrix and Robert Johnson. They made exactly. deals with the devil, and they didn't have earthquakes. Yeah. Keanu Reeves made a deal with the devil, and he didn't have an earthquake. <laughs> but he, actually, wait, Los Angeles has earthquakes all the time. Never mind. Never mind. There's a lot of deals with the devil in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> but that's but okay. I, I'm, I'm going to bring it up again. I realize it's not sort of targeted to our demo, but the It's Complicated movie that we saw yesterday <laughs> is about this very same topic, but in something as small as a divorce. And how, like, to to just sort of ascribe blame, even if you're one of the parties, is sort of a ridiculous thing to do because it underestimates the complexity of the situation. I mean, I'll I'll share a a brief personal moment in saying that when my folks were getting split up, one of my family friends took me out to a diner to talk to me about it. Actually, I asked him to take me. It was one of my friend's dads because I just wanted to talk to an adult about what was going on. Uh, And I think somebody who'd been through it. Uh, through a divorce. And, and I think one of the things he said to me that I didn't really comprehend at the time and took me like a good solid a couple of years yet was like, don't like, don't try to figure out whose fault it is. Right. Like, don't try to figure out why this is happening, because I mean, he didn't even explain to me why you don't want to figure out why it's happening. But I think that this this sort of uh, problem, I mean, problem is a boring word for it, but that's really what it is. It, this problem of reasoning. That rather has brought up this this like tendency to ascribe agency in a way that confirms the things that we already know, which is such a huge um, leaning that we have as human beings in the way that we think. Right, it really gets in your way a lot of the time when you're talking about things that operate on a micro level uh, in with vast complexity, almost sort of fractal problems. Right, if you want to sort right. of use it. I, I do have a counterexample um, to this, and this actually segues us back to the Golden Globes. Um, Someone, some, what instance of something that had a lot of agency um, was perhaps our favorite or not so favorite movie, 2009 Avatar, which <laughs> just netted James Cameron the award for best director for motion picture. Wow. Beating out, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right, though, would, you, would you say that um, a lot of other movies are subject to a lot of whimsy and a lot of studio influence and things like that? And something like Avatar very much is influenced by, you know, the agency really does lie in the director. And you can call it the auteur theory or whatever, what have you. But that movie is really as a product of James Cameron and his imagination. Now, you know what I'll say? I'll say this. I say that James Cameron definitely deserves that Best Director Oscar, or uh, Golden Globe. Oh, gosh. Um, but I don't think that the auteur way of thinking about it is perhaps the best way to reward him intellectually for what he managed to accomplish. No, and I think that the, I think that the auteur theory in general is a result of this kind of 
this kind of question begging, right? Because the the agency thing is is essentially a, a, a kind of question begging, right? A kind of a kind of circular reason. That is to say, I need I have to prove an argument. I'm going to assume the thing that proves the argument for me without actually uh, look up circular reasoning. Go to your rhetoric textbook. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't want well, to I feel like that <laughs> comes from, in Hollywood, that comes from they're looking for headliners. They're looking for people who can say, if you liked this movie, you will also like this movie, so you should give us another $10. Right? And they did, they've got their stars, but the, the studio system also sort of created this idea of the blockbuster director to do that. Because, you know, at some point you know, you're never going to sell a movie because the grips. Like it's you've got to draw a line somewhere with the things that you can familiarize people with and use to market to people, and I think that's where they've done that. Well, they're different. I, I mean, they're different. They're different levels of it. Like I remember when the the Matrix uh, sequels came out, there was a lot of a lot of talk about the fight choreography. Of course, that's when one of the Wachowski brothers started cross dressing, and like they probably didn't want to probably didn't want to wheel him out in front of the cameras but um uh right like there were different things but yeah no you want you want authors right and and the idea that like well you know this is um uh this is a whole this is a whole complicated system you know what I'll, i'll bring it back to when we were all in college together and writing comedy sketches together which is something that a lot of the writers on overthinking it used to do together in college you know where did where did the ideas come from like they they came from a lot of places uh, mostly Belinky, but a yeah, lot most of places. The execution yeah. came from everybody else. No, no, no. <laughs> but no, that is Belinky. Actually, well, no, I, if, I if believe anything, we spent about 40 hours a week arguing then over who actually had come up with the good idea that people like. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I don't want to, I mean, it's easy to say that because he's not here. You know, we just, we're, we're joking around, obviously. But, well, hmm. the, um, you know, right. I'm not. Most of the good ideas I've ever had, I've stolen from Belinky. Like that, right? Like, like the idea. Uh, oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna take us down memory lane, and let's let's just. Oh, they, they actually didn't go to college with us, Matt, so they're not gonna understand. <laughs> <laughs> what you're not, you're not going to to understand our in jokes. Well. You've made Papa Bear very angry today. Hold on, let me go back. I, I, I'm, a little, I, I'm not clear if we agree or disagree with this idea that this auteur theory does apply more to James Cameron than it does for other directors. Well, well we that, should define sort of what the auteur theory is and what it means first, right? I mean, do we know what we're talking about here? Well, the auteur theory – okay, like here's, here's your film criticism lesson for the day, right? The auteur theory was something that came um, – uh, out of France with a bunch of uh, theoretical writers who are all writing for a magazine. Of course, now I'm oversimplifying. Now I'm ascribing agency to to a thing that it, that is, in fact, a lot more complicated. But accept my vague overgeneralization wow. here, right? Like, uh, you really can't... You actually... This, this is a terrible black hole kind of thing that I brought up because it leaves you nowhere to hang your hat. The auteur theory or the idea that... Uh, that a film's director should be really considered the primary author of a movie and not, for example, the screenwriter or the actors or something like that or other other participants because the uh, the director is the consciousness through which uh, the whole gestalt work of art is, is um, uh, filtered is associated with uh, a body of French... Uh, uh, film criticism in the uh, uh, around the 60s that was associated with a magazine called Cahier du Cinema and a movement called the French New Wave or Nouvelle Vague. Right? Does that make sense? And it's the idea is that the director, the director is the guy, the director is the organizing consciousness for. Um, uh, and for all in the, for all our intents and purposes, the author of a film. Now, let me let me um, juxtapose that with another uh, theory, and I actually forget exactly what this theory is called. Maybe any of you guys can remind me, because I remember I, reading about it. I think I read about it in The Tipping Point, and it's an anthropological theory that a human being is only capable of having X number, or any animal, actually. Any, it's, a, it's, it's actually true. It's a number that you can ascribe to any, any, any animal. 
is capable of having X uh, mutually active interconnecting social relationships at a given time. And you can gauge the complexity of an animal's social interaction by the height of this number. And so a flock of crows can max out at, you know, what, like 20 crows maybe, uh, before you get to the point where not every crow... A murder, Pete. A group of crows crows. is called... A murder. So a murder of crows can only have a certain number of crows before it's very difficult for every crow to be able to be able to state that they know who every other crow is and what every other crow is doing. And it seems to me that it would be reasonable for someone to be the organizing consciousness on a film, for them to be knowledge to know the people who are working on it and to be aware of what they are doing to contribute to it. But the size and scope of film production is so large that it's not even remotely feasible, I think, that James Cameron is really cognizant of all the people who worked on Avatar and everything that they did, even if he knows all their names because he sat around and read the credits. So the idea of... An did you watch? I watched all the credits for Avatar. You, you know how credits are usually like one name per line? Uh, yeah. They bunched the uh, they bunched the names up to four or five on a line. It was just huge paragraphs. Like you type yeah. a paragraph in a word processing document of um, you know of uh, names, and it still went on for fifteen minutes uh, after the movie was done. While the while the scream and pop single "I See You" uh, played on, <laughs> <laughs> played on uh, on the soundtrack. Like there are so many. So many people who like, hey, I, you know, like I articulated the knuckle joints of the, uh, you know what I mean? Of the, like the the animal species number 36 that we saw in the, in the Avatar movie. Um, Yeah. No, but that's, I mean, things like this, uh, movie production especially is like, is regimented and, and extremely hierarchical so that everyone reports to a department head who reports to one of several kind of Uber department heads. And, you know, the director deals, uh, deals with the, yeah, the director deals with his lieutenants, if you will, and then you know commands get get passed on. Um, passed here's on a question. The here's a question. I'm looking at the the categories here. There's not a director category in the Golden Globes for television, and why do we ascribe that sort of power and authority to film directors, but not to television directors? Because television directors in the business. Are, I mean, in the television business are considered more or less traffic directors and the real the kind of the real auteurs of television are considered to be uh, the writers and and there's a hierarchy there uh, and the head writer uh, and usually it's a person with an executive producer credit on the show uh, is called the show runner and it was you know um, for the last three years of uh, of um, of the West Wing, it was John Wells. You know, on uh, Seinfeld, it was Larry David. Right, like the, the this these are the uh, the person who's kind of the the go no go person for major decisions related to the uh, okay. re- related to the show, and the, and they stay with the show throughout the whole season. Whereas a director, even a director uh, who's associated with the show, may direct three episodes out of twenty two. You know. And it feels like that the, the sort of the concept of the showrunner and the credit that we give to a showrunner has certainly increased lately. Like J.J. Abrams, I think of as sort of a celebrity showrunner. Sure. Um, but I mean, like, I'm trying to think of who that would have been ten years ago or twenty years ago. Like, I saw Stephen J. Cannell's name on a lot of things. Was he a showrunner? Like, what? I mean, who? We. The, the auteur theory is 50 years old, and yet it's like we don't do that for television. If anything, there's a star of a TV show. There's not a backstage person who gets that sort of credit. Well, there are different. I mean, there are different kinds of of um, uh, there are different kinds of TV shows. There's a um, there's a, a famous exchange right between uh, Tracy Ullman and James Brooks. Uh, before before the Simpsons, when James Brooks was not the like the kind of the entertainment rabbi, the the showbiz rabbi on the Simpsons, and was the the executive producer of the Tracy Ullman show, where they were clashing over something, and she wanted it her way because she was the star and and the kind of major creative talent, and he was the the kind of producer responsible for actually making the show, and uh, she said. 
Yeah, but 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 this is the Tracy Ullman show, and I'm Tracy Ullman. And he looked at her and said, "Yeah, I'm the show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the show." And um, right, like it's true that like you've seen um, you've seen the rise of uh, the rise of kind of backstage. I think a lot of that has to do with um, with the internet, right? Like the internet makes us all a bunch of of insufferable Monday morning quarterbacks on absolutely every subject, right? Like, hey, I can make television better than that, or I could, you know, I don't know, I could run the internet better than that, or I know what's what's uh, uh, I know what the real business interests are, I know what's going on behind behind the scenes, and I think that the, the, the dissemination, the wider dissemination of, of information has made us more sophisticated about, um, about entertainment, while at yeah, the same time... I, I, want, I wanted to tie that back into some of the stuff you said before, too, because I think that the way that information is organized on the internet much more resembles... Um, I mean, a truer way of thinking about information where the agency of the people involved is is uh, devolved to a lower level of primacy. And you really see the the real sheer depth of complexity associated with even a, the most simple thing that happens. Um, and I think that it is on us to, as a culture and as human beings, to figure out how to cope with this reality. Because the number I was talking about is called the Dunbar number, by the way. And for people, it's about 150 is that you can be in a group of people of about 150, and if it gets bigger than that, it's really hard to conceive of them as personal relationships, which means that it, it's on us to figure out how to get our brains to work to comprehend in a post-IMDB world, right? And I think that's part of what we're doing on this show. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely, I think, I read once that it's sort of a fool's errand to try to adapt human culture to Darwinism, right? Because the evolutionary time is inconceivable to humans, um, not in a in a logical sense, not in the sense of inconceivable as a sort of form of rhetoric as a as a term in logic, but inconceivable in the fact that in fact that it's very difficult for us to hold it in our minds and, and to internalize it. And I think that that micro history is what I'm going to jump out and say. This is this is really what what this is all about. The, the history of interpersonal relationships on the micro level and the real web of complexity that follows them through large cooperative and collaborative human endeavors. I think that's beyond all of us. Uh, and, and that's sort of what we're the space that we're trying to map out and create here, and the things that we're talking about. And it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the reasons that the sort of the twenty-four hour news cycle and whatnot does not do us any favors, uh, right? As as people who are who are engaged in an effort to comprehend the world that we live in, um, because that kind of uh, uh, what what Darwinism does is like what the idea does is it gives us a um, Oh, it it instead of trying to understand the the myriad uh, uh, minute interactions, it gives us a, uh, a a theory in which to organize um, you know our our perceptions, and of course, then we of course take it and debase it and misunderstand it and use it as a metaphor in all kinds of ways when it, where it doesn't really apply. But um, you know that it's like, but but we what we have. Uh, now, instead of kind of a, a view of a larger sweep of an issue, uh, is a an agglomeration, a um, like a uh, an, an accumulation. What's the word I'm I'm looking for? Aggregation, an aggregation of a lot of different facts, right? A lot of uh, a lot of data points, and even the relationship between those data points, but no uh, no real sense of. Um, no real sense of what the larger story is, and I think that I think that is something that we're trying to do on overthinking it. Uh, other than like entertaining you by you know delving into the the minutia of Dragon Ball Z, like the laws of aesthetics, like the laws of narratology, as illustrated by examples from uh, Dragon Ball Z. Well, one thing we're trying to do is is like hit the zoom out button a couple times on the um on the culture like saying like don't sit so goddamn close to your TV like you know you know what i mean zoom out on your television a little bit because this is a um uh the, the, so much energy goes into popular entertainment now uh so much money goes into it it is you know one of the the real products of our culture and one of the real American exports and America is not really exporting, um, 
uh, anything else. Guns and tabloid journalism. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> so that, like, um, you know, I think it's worth it to take the time to 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 try and understand it, even if we do have our tongue in our cheek uh, uh, a lot of the time. God, how did we get so heavy? We started out with a show about uh, uh, Arsenio Hall and, and the Golden Globes. Hey, anyone have a Golden Globe report? This will make you and Sheely happy. Best TV series, comedy, comedy or musical. Glee. Yes. Best podcast about the best TV series, comedy or musical, <laughs> is These Effing Teenagers. Uh, find it on the homepage of overthinkingit.com. Hey, speaking of that, when are you guys going to do a new episode? Well, when there are new episodes of either Gossip Girl or Glee. I think Gossip Girl is oh, coming back. Oh, convenient excuse. <laughs> we actually – I was talking with Ryan. We were away from the holidays. But he and I, we want to lay a little bit of social science groundwork in that podcast. So we may actually do a show where uh, Ryan essentially lectures on certain basic social science topics that, uh, that need to be understood as groundwork yeah. for uh, – I think that would be great. And, and, and by the way, I, I listen to your guys' podcast. I never watch these shows, neither Glee nor Gossip Girl, and yet I still find it uh, incredibly entertaining and informative because of those things like the uh, the social science concepts that you guys bring up. It's good stuff. Well, thank I wish you. I could say this. I wish I could say the same thing about Glee, though. Ooh. Bringing the Glee War back. Well, those, yeah, God, the Glee War. No, no, we're not. I'm not actually going to bring the Glee War back. We had the Glee War. We had the feminism war. We had the post structuralism <laughs> war. We had the Simpsons. We had the Simpsons War. Now we're having like the the uh, the Conan War. I think one of those other wars is coming to an end soon. Actually, one of those because I've heard through the grapevine that at some point in the near future, Belinky is going to start watching The Wire. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Next few months. yeah. Apparently, he's, yeah, they're finishing up the shield now, and they're going to move on to the wire next. Hey, I understand that progression. Actually, the shield is not a bad way to get into the wire. You no. know, because it like it's 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 like the wire in certain respects, and and totally unlike it in other in other respects. God, that's the worst comparison yeah. I've ever made. Much like the Muppets, <laughs> just like the wire in certain respects. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike it in other respects. I'm going to share this with you. I got uh, I got a pill prescription the other day with a sticker on it that said, take with or without food. <laughs> Which I found to be not particularly one my, helpful. One of my friends who's in advertising sent an image that he took on a New York City subway train around to a bunch of his friends on Facebook. And the, the ad said, uh, diabetic, question mark, depressed, diabetic. Like, Depressed but not diabetic? Neither? <laughs> Both? <laughs> <laughs> Call for more information. Or it's like <laughs> I thought that was very funny. And I, and I and I and I what I tried to explain was that it's it's a company that can give you more information on anything, but it can't diagnose either diabetes or depression. And they kept getting calls from people asking for that information. So they require that you have that information before you call, just in case. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're coming up on the uh, on the hour mark here, so let's uh, let's wrap it up. Anyone have any parting shots about the Golden Globes, about agency, about uh, Arsenio Hall? Uh, I'm going to ask Pete real quick for a recommendation. So, Pete, you, you do think we should all go on Hulu and watch Human Target, right? <laughs> I feel like you should watch the first like the first the opening sequence of Human Target, like the very very opening uh, scenario. That they face in Human Target. Human Target has a really, really difficult premise to be able to sustain over many episodes because it's like very specific. Um, do you guys know what the show is about? It's about a bodyguard, right? Yeah, it's about a guy who, if you, someone is trying to kidnap or assassinate you, you go to him and he will pretend to be like an innocuous member of your entourage, but will actually be like a highly trained bodyguard whose job it is to try to get the bad guy to kill him rather than kill you, uh, which is like a very, it's very convoluted, um, but it's, it's fun. And, and I think the guy does a good job. So yeah, you, I, I'm not going to say you have to watch the whole episode, but watch the opening sequence in the bank. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and let me know whether it's something that you liked. All right. 
And uh, I guess one other just topical thing, Matt, uh, we didn't get to talk about it here, but Dollhouse just ended. So, like, in an open thread somewhere, we should... No, there's we should, one more. Uh, there's one more. There's is there one more really? Dollhouse. Yeah, I know. I, I saw that, and I thought... I was watching it, and, and we were like, um, hey, Dollhouse Dollhouse is over. Wow, that's, that's it. That's kind of a bleak way to end the show. But there's one more episode that takes place in the future. Oh, that was... Wasn't that the end of season one? Isn't that the the famous episode that was on the DVD, but not anywhere else? Yeah, uh, called Epitaph One. No, yeah. it was co- it was called Epitaph One, or it was called Omega. No, it was called Epitaph One. Um, yeah. and it was uh, it was on the uh, DVD, and it had Felicia Day in it. So all yeah, the fan- cool. all the fanboys were were creaming their little shorts about that. Actually, that's, that's really interesting because that's what Babylon Five did when they thought they were canceled. They finished, I think, their fourth season with an episode that happened in the future. Um, and then they got a f- picked up for a fifth season, and they were able to end it the way that they wanted to end it. But it's kind of an interesting way of. Wait, sort there's of- a fifth season. What? I saw that one and assumed it was over. No, there's a fifth season of Babylon Five. Oh, Tracy man. Scoggins is in it, and Tracy Scoggins is a quality quality actress in a number of R-rated movies that contain brief nudity, but not this show. <laughs> uh, she here she plays a spaceship captain for no reason. Uh, no, 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 you watch the fifth season of Babylon Five. The fourth season is where it peaks, but. Uh, but um, the fifth, and the third season is really good too. But the fifth season is worth watching if you like the show. Like it's a lot like The Wire, actually. In that regard. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, Mark. Anything from you? Oh yeah, just a couple of last uh, Golden Globes awards reports. Uh, the Hangover one, Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. Uh, seems like it deserved that and was uh, head and shoulders above the pack that it beat. Um, I will say that uh, my Golden Globe relief is that the song from Avatar did not win Best Original Song Motion Picture. Because <laughs> you mentioned it before. You. That was pretty craptastic. And i got to say that James Cameron probably should have hired me to do a power ballad for that. <laughs> uh, that would have made a rock like a turn for the power ballad. Make that happen, man. Make that video. <laughs> the, the song that won is the Crazy Heart song by, by uh, The Big Lebowski, right? Or The Little Lebowski, right? <laughs> Yeah, by uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, but he's probably who has not. a fabulous new beard, which you should all Google. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Or you, or you can see it if you watch Conan last night. But we've established you don't have to do that to learn about new things. Yes, yes. <laughs> Fortunately, that's available on YouTube, and you don't have to watch the other crap. But I'm glad that we've. I'm glad that we have uh, been updating you. Uh, about the breaking news in the Golden Globes, because obviously on Wednesday when you listen to this podcast, <laughs> you, you won't have heard who won all these Golden Globes. So we have now, Matt, now, now we've you know scientists have established that people enjoy things more when they it like tickles the memory centers of their brain. <laughs> so like people will be able to get three day old nostalgia by listening to our surprise. That's why we watch. That's why we watch MSNBC. Or Fox News, right? Like we 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 like things that can confirm our prejudice. Yeah, or the Teletubbies. <laughs> the Teletubbies do the same. Uh, well, where do you go for the latest breaking news in entertainment and popular culture? No, just kidding. <laughs> where, do you go? where do you go to press the zoom button a couple times and learn about the laws of narratology from Dragon Ball Z? Why, it's our site, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't deserve. Copy that. Copy that.